Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Chapter One, Wayfair welcomes you to the neighborhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the neighborhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. This is Bowery Boys After Dark. History with a side of spice. Today's show will feature discussions of adult playgrounds of a mature nature. Now, we won't get too far into the specifics, but needless to say, parental guidance is suggested. But first... Let's talk about a farm. William Earl Dodge Stokes had a farm, a most unusual farm. Despite being a gentleman engaged in real estate and dalliances with chorus girls, Stokes personally attended to his little farm and its extraordinary collection of farm animals. Hundreds of chickens, goats, pigs, geese with clipped wings, and even at one point, a small, domesticated bear. This farm was not at his Kentucky horse ranch, where he raised prize-winning thoroughbreds, nor was it out in the New York countryside, rapidly disappearing by the start of the 20th century. This ragged and mostly illegal animal farm was raised more than 180 feet off the ground, on a rooftop which overlooked both the Hudson River and a rising city of apartment buildings and office towers. For Farmer Stokes had placed his little farm atop an architectural marvel, a glamorous home for music, scandal, and sex, a place called the Ansonia. Hi there, welcome to the Barry Boys. This is Greg Young, just solo today, and starting the new year by looking at the peculiarity of one old and famous apartment building on the Upper West Side. Now, New York, generally speaking, tends to attract a profound and eccentric mix of people. And when you put that mix of personalities into an old, lived-in apartment building with its own unusual quirks, you create a very unique world. A building that's almost like a collection of short stories. On the Hulu mystery comedy television show, Only Murders in the Building, characters played by Martin Short, Steve Martin, and Selena Gomez attempt to solve a murder mystery in a building of this type, filled with eccentrics, dramatic cat people, overeager therapists, busy musicians, nosy doormen, and of course, a few actual celebrities. The apartment on the show is called the Arconia, and while some of it is actually filmed at the Belnord Apartments at West 86th Street, the name is directly inspired by a classic located a dozen blocks south, 
the Ansonia at 2109 Broadway between 73rd and 74th Streets. Life at the Ansonia has never been ordinary. It's hallways filled with music and intrigue. It's lobby, sometimes a battlefield between tenants and owners. And those are just the upper floors. During the 1960s and 70s, the basement of the Ansonia became New York's greatest sexual landmark, where hedonism and fame met in a haze of steam and disco lights. The origin of the Ansonia, in fact, begins underground. It was built with wealth from copper mines. William Earl Dodge Stokes was the scion of a great American metal dynasty, Phelps Dodge and Company. Originally founded by Stokes' grandfather Anson G. Phelps in 1834, the company would be the largest copper miners in the world. Their base of operations was an industrial region near the village of Birmingham, Connecticut. As industrialists are sometimes wont to do, Anson named the new development after himself, Ansonia. In 1851, Phelps moved into the business of clockmaking, brass being a highly desired material for the most elegant examples, and he founded the Ansonia Clock Company, a business which would eventually move to Brooklyn's Park Slope neighborhood in 1879. Phelps' grandson, William Earl Dodge Stokes, or W.E.D. Stokes for short, seemed little interested in either mines or clocks or Brooklyn. To quote Stephen Gaines from his book The Sky's the Limit, quote, Stokes was the all-time black sheep of his prominent family. He was the sort of man who, when his father died in August of 1881, contested the will, sued his brother for conspiring to throw him out of the family business, and walked away with the $1 million inheritance. Stokes then charted a new course for himself, dabbling in real estate in one of New York's hottest development areas of the decade, the Upper West Side. With the creation of Central Park in the 1860s and 70s, its East Side soon became a fashionable destination for New York's elite. Some ambitious developers then asked, could the park's West Side follow in its footsteps? Developers like Stokes asked this question right at the moment of a major shift in urban living. The arrival of the French flat, or apartment. Now, upwardly mobile families, the growing upper middle class, could occupy several floors of a new building, but could forgo certain costs by sharing services such as domestic help. Equally important, the apartment appealed to those more unconventional, in New York society, the esteemed widow, the artist bachelor, or the single employed woman of wealth. The first apartment building in New York is considered to be the Stuyvesant Apartments south of Gramercy Park, which opened in 1870 and many more soon followed. The ornate Beaux-Arts architectural styles of these first apartment buildings set them apart from tenements and boarding houses where people had been living near each other for decades. The apartment craze really set in by the year 1880, when developers began looking at the Upper West Side as the next big thing. Partially thanks to the 9th Avenue Elevated Railroad, which was extended into this area the previous year. One such developer was Edward C. Clark, head of the Singer Sewing Machine Company, who planted his spectacular apartment prospect 
the Dakota Apartments at 72nd Street, one block away from the elevated train, its riders craning their necks to catch sight of this bizarre and singular structure. The Dakota would inspire a development frenzy, its new neighbors some of the most beautiful residential buildings ever created in New York. Starting in 1885, the year after the Dakota's opening, W.E.D. Stokes began developing dozens of single-family brownstone homes all around the Upper West Side. He even fancied himself as spokesman for the burgeoning neighborhood itself. In 1889, he successfully petitioned the city council to pave the West Side stretch of old Bloomingdale Road, called in these days the Boulevard, and of course, by the 20th century, we would know it as Broadway. For Stokes, it was key to spruce up this neighborhood, both to increase property values for his own existing structures and to raise the profile of future ones. For Stokes was planning on outdoing the Dakota. Now, he had his eye on 73rd Street, the eastern portion of that property owned by the New York Orphan Society. This venerable organization had sat in this rural area for decades. One of its chief benefactors had been Eliza Schuyler Hamilton, who vigorously took up the cause of orphaned children following the death of her husband, Alexander Hamilton. By the 1880s, then, this no longer rural land was simply too valuable. And soon, Stokes had purchased the eastern portion of the property for an apartment development of his own. Stokes did hold some political clout. For instance, in the early 1890s, he sat on a committee campaigning for New York as the host of the World's Fair. New York lost. That fair went to Chicago. But a bit like the Upper West Side itself, Stokes remained on the outside of New York social circles. Yet with his newfound prominence, he felt he could no longer remain single. After seeing a portrait of the ravishing Rita Hernandez de Alba de Acosta in a photographer's window, he decided to pursue her. In 1895, the 19-year-old Rita, an elegant young woman of Cuban and Spanish descent, married the 42-year-old Stokes. The pair split their time between the corridors of New York society and Stokes' Kentucky farm where he bred racehorses. Their marriage was a disaster, almost from the start. And in 1899, just three short years after Rita gave birth to a son, the couple went their separate ways. By then, Stokes was consumed with his new construction project, which began work in 1897 and took several years to complete, first opening in 1903 and then finished the following year. He hired the French architect Paul E.M. Du Bois to create an ornate Beaux-Arts confection, pure excess in stone. People often gasp when they first see the Ansonia, the 17th floor architectural masterpiece with its terracotta finery and elegant mansard roof seems to have been transported from the streets of Paris. Its dual towers, reminiscent of a French chateau, grandly overshadowed anything else on the Upper West Side, its facade laced with copper touches from Ansonia's own copper mines. As described by historian Elizabeth Hawes, inside and out, the Ansonia was a theatrical building, 
Behind the curves and cornices were apartments of oval reception rooms or immense circular parlors, and on higher floors there were bedrooms with spectacular views. The Ansonia was technically a residential hotel, meaning long-term permanent stays with shared amenities like room service and a central kitchen employing the city's top chefs. Although the largest apartments were like reconfigured townhouses with rooms for live-in domestic help. The apartments were furnished not only with the most elaborate and expensive plumbing one could find in the city, but also with a pneumatic tube system delivering messages throughout the building. At ground floor, residents were greeted with the lobby fountain with live seals, a ballroom and a banquet hall in an opulent French style comparable to Delmonico's. Even the basement was most impressive, with an arcade of shops, a charging station for electric cars. In the early 1900s, the first automobiles were electric. A cold storage room for fur coats, a Turkish bath, and one of the world's largest indoor swimming pools. In other words, the Ansonia had it all. And of course, don't forget the Stokes Sky Farm on the rooftop. The main attraction here was the hundreds of chickens that provided eggs for the building. Hotel staff brought the freshly laid eggs to Ansonia tenants and sold the rest at market. But Stokes also hosted pigs, ducks, and geese. And it was complaints about these animals that prompted the New York Department of Health to shut down the Sky Farm in 1907. The pigs and geese were sent to Central Park Zoo, but the chickens stuck around. In fact, Stokes managed to house the birds in his own apartment, one of the reasons cited by the second Mrs. Stokes, the former Helen Elwood, in her petition for divorce in 1921. She said in her testimony, At one time he kept as many as 47 chickens. He had six boxes of chicks brought in, and he started to raise them. She also complained of, quote, strange women in their apartment. You see, W.E. Stokes had a wandering eye. In 1907, he was sued for child support by a woman named Lucy Randolph, who claimed to have given birth to his son. Will be food for lovers of scandal, declared the Buffalo Inquirer. Yet the case quietly went away, as did Lucy and her son. Four years later, in 1911, Stokes was involved in another high-profile drama, and you are not going to believe me if I try and describe it, so instead, I'm just going to read a clip from the New York Times. Quote, On June 7th, 1911, Lillian Graham and Ethel Conrad, chorus girls, had a dispute with Mr. Stokes in their apartment at Broadway and 80th Street. Both opened fire on him with pistols and three Japanese men ran in and attacked him by jujitsu methods. Mr. Stokes was injured three times in the legs. He was so badly hurt by the Japanese assailants that an operation was necessary. The two women were prosecuted, but were acquitted. Oh, and I should mention that W.E. Stokes was also a eugenicist, holding the belief that humans should be selectively bred to eliminate undesirable hereditary traits, a not unpopular belief during this period in American history that would later become quite attractive to the Nazis. Employing his full faith in animal husbandry, in 1917, Stokes wrote the book 
the right to be well-bred, or horse breeding in its relation to eugenics. From a review in the New York Herald, quote, Among other discoveries, Mr. Stokes has found out why Chicago women used to have, the present generation is acquitted of this impeachment, big feet. I'll link to that one on the website if you are further interested in what Stokes has to say on that matter. Now add this to Stokes' constant litigation, aggrieved throughout his life with family members, hotel contractors, and wives, and you can imagine some very, to be modern here, very bad mojo at the Ansonia. Over here on the Upper West Side, the Ansonia was never going to be the Waldorf Astoria, but the place had a serious edge to it. In 1905, a friend of Stokes, the racketeer Al Adams, known as New York's policy king for his involvement in illegal gambling, recently freed from Sing Sing Prison, announced that he was going to build a hotel twice the size of the Ansonia near Pennsylvania Station. But the money fell through, and the following year, Adams shot and killed himself on the 15th floor of the Ansonia. In 1916, an executive named Edward West brought a young woman from Chicago here to the Ansonia and was ensnared in a blackmail plot, her accomplices framing West for allegedly violating the Mann Act, a sex trafficking law. West, however, swallowed his pride, went to the press, and the blackmailers were eventually caught. But the Ansonia's most notorious criminal connection involves one of the greatest crimes in sports history. Now, by the 1910s, many sports figures made the Ansonia their home, including the boxer Jack Dempsey and even Babe Ruth, who was often seen roaming the floors in his scarlet silk bathrobe. Another baseball player who stayed at the Ansonia was Chick Gandel, who played for the Chicago White Sox. On September 21st, 1919, Gandel invited eight of his teammates in town after a Boston game back to his room at the Insonia and spun out a plot to throw the 1919 World Series to their rivals, the Cincinnati Reds. The scheme was financed by one of New York's most notorious crime lords, Arnold Rothstein, and the players were to be handsomely compensated for this deceit. The World Series was indeed thrown by the players, but rather clumsily, and rumors of the fix quickly spread. By the following year, the scandal had been exposed, and eight players were banned permanently, including Gandal and the once legendary and now disgraced player, Shoeless Joe Jackson. Of the Ansonia Pact, author Elliot Asanoff wrote, quote, in the history of American sport, it would be difficult to find another meeting that led to events so shattering. They chose to risk all this for a sleazy promise of dirty money. W.E.D. Stokes died in 1926, his life of endless litigation and drama at an end. But the Ansonia remained associated with high drama in a more aesthetically pleasing form as the preferred home for opera and orchestral music superstars. By the 1920s, the Ansonia had become a sort of second opera house, 
The residents of such opera divas like Geraldine Farrar and Roberta Peters, conductor Arturo Toscanini, and composers Igor Stravinsky and Sergei Rachmaninoff. Diva Lily Pons also lived here at the Insonia with her pet Ocelot until forced to donate it to the Bronx Zoo. Over time, the Ansonia would slowly start losing its luster, its lavish apartments broken up into smaller units, its ballrooms and restaurants shuttered. During the years of World War II, it even lost those ornamental copper finishes. From the New York Times, September 19, 1942, quote, the Hotel Ansonia, architecturally outstanding because of its wealth of ornamental metalwork, will be stripped of thousands of pounds of this strategic copper next Monday or Tuesday to aid the war program. By the 1950s, the Ansonia, still beautiful though much reduced, had become just a regular old apartment building with residents who would grow to love the building and its mounting list of eccentricities. But the building would reach the heights of notoriety in the 1960s and 70s, scandalizing even the building's most progressive tenants. The Ansonia was about to become a landmark of American sexuality. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. In the winter of 1972, Rex Reed, the art critic for the New York Daily News, wrote about a musical performance that has now entered musical legend. The performer's name was Bette Midler. There were 3,000 people waiting to get into the Continental Baths to see the freaky Ms. M. The place featured a dance floor, a snack bar, no booze, living room, swimming pool, and a tiny stage. Everybody is friendly, chatty, and terribly helpful. Most of the audience is on the floor, and half of it is dressed only in towels. The only reason anyone is dressed at all is that when Bette sings, the ladies are invited. 
There are even celebrities in the crowd, for word is out that she's the best show in town. Men wander in from the steam room upstairs and rub wet elbows with chorus girls and Andy Warhol superstars. The lights lower, silence settles. In the dark, off to the side, a door slowly, insidiously opens. A tight-fitting garbo cloche is pulled down over her brow. She shuffles over the rolling half-nude bodies and sags into her mic, a vision of scrambled caricatures of past comedians, Zazu Pitts, Fanny Bryce, Kay Ballard. She resembles them all. With perfect timing, she accepts the bravos thrown from the crowd and begins her theme song. The applause echoes like thunder off the walls. She does have friends. Unquote. That clip is actually from an entire performance by Bette Midler at the Continental Baths, a video that you can find on YouTube. Not in great quality, but a wonder to behold. The Continental Baths was a gay bathhouse where men congregated for sexual encounters And it was also a live music performance venue on the weekends, which became quite trendy for its day, even considered a tourist attraction. So what does this have to do with the story? The Continental Baths opened in 1968 in the basement of the Ansonia. The building faced hard times in the post-Stokes years. By the 1950s, the building was owned by Jacob Starr much better known as the president of Artcraft Strauss Sign Corporation, which lit up Times Square in dazzling displays of neon. Starr helped to create the modern Times Square as the crossroads of the world, but he was flummoxed by what to do with the Ansonia, which was in dire need of major renovation. Although it was still called the Hotel Ansonia, it was no longer a residential hotel, but rather an apartment building with many longtime tenants who pleaded in vain for improvements. For Starr, it probably made more sense to just tear the whole place down. But in the meantime, he needed to find some way to generate income for the place. And that opportunity came along in 1968 with the opera singer Steve Ostro. Now, according to Ostro's autobiography, Live at the Continental, he was actually taking singing lessons at the Insonia when he noticed an unusual side entrance, which led to a deserted health club beneath the building. He had been looking for just such a space to launch a new venture, a gay bathhouse. The center of LGBT life in New York City had been Greenwich Village for at least a century by this time, existing alongside both the vice industries and the tea houses of this historic neighborhood. But by the 1930s, the city began specifically cracking down on gay and lesbian bars and arresting people simply for frequenting them. There were few ways for gay men to meet each other without being harassed, which led to the rise of the bathhouse as a meeting place for both sex and community. 
By the 1950s, gay men in New York could go to such places as the Everard Baths on West 28th Street or the St. Mark's Baths at St. Mark's Place. At the same time, gay activists were pushing back against the cultural and legal oppression of their community with the formation of groups like the Matachine Society. Ostro opened the Continental Baths in the basement of the Ansonia on September 16, 1968, several months before the Stonewall Uprising in June of 1969, which marks the public emergence of the gay rights movement. There was clearly an eager market for the Continental Baths. On opening day, there was such a rush of patrons that the bathhouse nearly ran out of towels. They immediately expanded, adding a dance floor and a DJ booth, somewhat rare components of the gay establishment during this period, considering it was technically illegal for gay men to dance with one another. To set it apart from the drab and even dank furnishings of other establishments, Ostro brought in the interior designer Richard Orbach, whose pop art sensibilities would find their way into the homes of celebrities like Liza Minnelli and Diane Carroll. Finally, he brought in a stage for music and comedy acts. Perhaps not that shocking when you consider that there was already a vibrant social scene developing here alongside the sexual activity. Bette Midler was one of the first acts to perform at the Continental Baths in 1971, occasionally with piano player Barry Manilow. Her powerful, confident style garnered her an immediate gay following and her performances were so key to the formation of her public image that she garnered the nickname Bathhouse Betty. But she was not the only performer on the stages of the Continental Baths. Those men who headed to the baths for erotic adventures on a Saturday night could also catch performances by Andy Kaufman, Sarah Vaughn, Patti LaBelle, Melba Moore, or the New York Dolls. And remember the opera connection at the Ansonia? The opera diva, Eleanor Stieber, who lived at the Ansonia, not only performed at the baths, she even recorded an entire album here for RCA Victor. According to Ostra's book, quote, handsome, well-built young men clad in black continental towels with black bow ties guided the audience to their seats. The Continental Baths became a trendy destination for straight downtowners. In 1973, Richard Goldstein of New York Magazine described the Baths as the last outpost of genuine glamour in this recession-rutted town. However, the musical performances had been such a draw, it actually drove the men away who were there to just, you know, hook up. While Ostro eventually eliminated the live entertainment, the club had been overshadowed by newer, trendier gay establishments in the city, and it eventually closed in 1976. But we're not done with the basement. Meanwhile, on the other 17 floors, tensions continued to rise between tenants and the building's owner when rents became stabilized and the residents successfully organized a tenant organization. Starr, who considered the old place a money pit, announced that he was going to tear the whole structure down and replace it with a new one. The Ansonians may have lamented the crumbling condition of their home, but there was also a deep-seated community here who loved the place. In retaliation, the tenants deployed a new tool to the New York architectural scene, landmarking. 
they successfully petitioned the city, and in March of 1972, that's at the height of the Continental Bath years, the exterior of the Ansonia was declared an official city landmark. But tenant struggles at the Ansonia were just beginning. Now, it had barely gotten cold in that now abandoned basement when another tenant moved in. Another sex club, but quite different. At Plato's retreat, you can make your dreams come true. Fulfill your wildest fantasies, we've got them all for you. The pleasure and the fun will keep you feeling young, it's for you. It's for you. Larry Levinson opened Plato's Retreat at the Ansonia in September of 1977. This was a sex club for swingers. Swinging, or the swapping of sexual partners with other couples, came into a certain vogue as an extension of the 1960s free love movement, transforming itself into an underground party scene held in private homes for those straight-ish couples who wished to experiment. Levinson claimed to be inspired by the gay liberation movement in his opening of Plato's Retreat, providing a safe public venue for swingers. Yet Plato's Retreat discouraged any activity between men. In fact, men could only be admitted if they were in the company of a woman. Single women could go in, of course, at a reduced rate. In addition to the dance floor, and the mattress rooms, often packed with writhing naked New Yorkers. Plato's Retreat also featured a well-stocked buffet of middling quality should you want a shrimp cocktail amid the erotic shenanigans. In a larger context, Plato's Retreat represented the edge in New York's larger hedonistic nightlife scene of the 1970s. But it's at the latter end of the disco era when the sex and sin of disco became more mainstream, that is, more straight and white. For instance, the movie Saturday Night Fever opened in theaters just three months after Plato's Retreat opened its doors. The following year, Joe Thomas even released a disco song in honor of the erotic venue. But nobody was tapping their feet to this beat upstairs. Being the late 1970s in New York City, the streets around the Insonia became a veritable Times Square, according to one resident quoted in the Daily News. The Swingers Club was not greeted with the same enthusiasm and amusement as the Continental Baths had been. Opera star Eleanor Stieber who had once performed at the baths, now recoiled within her lavish, decorated apartment. From New York Magazine, she declared, quote, How can we get that thing out? Has the health department inspected the place? My God, what have we become? Unquote. In fact, the health department had been called on several occasions, and eventually, by 1980, the club vacated the Ansonia to a location on West 34th Street. The following year, the owner, Larry Levinson, was convicted of tax evasion and spent eight years in federal prison. The new Plato's Retreat was shut down by the city 
1985. Now, back up at the Insonia, the residents must have thought themselves in a bit of a hellscape as the building continued to deteriorate. Broken windows, undrinkable water, filth caked upon the once desirable ornamentation. A consortium of investors operating as Ansonia Associates swept in to buy the building in the late 1970s. But to fix the building, the new landlords threatened to vastly increase the rent, leading to rent strikes and litigation. And the changes they did make were controversially banal. In 1980, Paul Goldberger wrote of the Ansonia, quote, The inside has gone from Beaux-Arts grandeur to a state of near dereliction, unquote. However, one change was generally uncontroversial. The site of the Continental Baths and Plato's Retreat was turned into a parking garage. In the 1980s, according to Stephen Gaines, quote, the Ansonia Hotel became the single most litigated residence in the history of New York City, unquote. The whole thing was a contentious mess, further exacerbated when the owners began its conversion to a condominium in 1990. From the New York Times in 1994, quote, it is, I would think, one of the most bitterly fought landlord-tenant battles in the history of New York State, said Judge Arthur Birnbaum, who will soon be trying between 40 and 50 Ansonia rent strike cases, unquote. I'll leave the rest of the story to the tenants and the management of the Ansonia. Now, this was not a clean story in any sense of the word. The Ansonia's history is dark, glamorous, contentious, complicated, sleazy, and joyfully musical. In other words, an absolutely delightful example of the New York City apartment. The tenants live among the ghosts of gangsters and opera stars. The building is both a celebration of classical architecture and music and a monument to progressive American sexuality. Next to its gorgeous 73rd Street entrance is a plaque declaring the Ansonia a landmark of American music. Quote, since its opening, it has been chosen by many famous musicians as a place to live and work. And I think its 1972 landmark designation sums it up nicely. The Ansonia is a symbol of an era of opulence and elegance and still stands as one of the truly grand buildings of Manhattan's west side. Those who support the Bowery Boys on Patreon will get an all-new podcast later this week revealing more stories of the Ansonia that I didn't get to share on this show. I could have filled this with at least 30 more minutes of interesting little anecdotes and special secrets from the Ansonia. Let's just say it involves ghosts. To listen, support the Bowery Boys podcast on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. And I hope that you're all enjoying our new spinoff podcast, The Gilded Gentleman, hosted by Carl Raymond. Next week, he'll release his fifth episode. So you've got some catching up to do if you're not subscribed yet. So go subscribe, and then you'll hear his fifth episode introducing you to the first American princess of Monaco. 
And no, it, it's not Grace Kelly. So on behalf of Tom, we wish you a joyous 2022. We're in the midst of our 15th year of recording, and we have some exciting things planned for you in the following year. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.